Dusty, have you ever gone on a hunting trip? Well, yeah. You pack all your stuff. Let's say you're driving to New Hampshire. Let's say I'm driving to Ohio, and you're hunting for four, five, six days. What's the biggest challenge you usually have? You're going to stop multiple times and get gas, and I, I worry about odor the whole way. It's always in the back of your head. After talking to our friend Tim Gothier, we realized that there's a better solution that is portable, and that solution is called the Scentlock Enforcer. This nifty little device about the size of an iPhone, it produces ozone. Ozone is this naturally occurring O3 molecule that actually naturally removes odors, kills bacteria, binds to all kinds of odor particles in the air, and basically makes you scent-free instead of like a scent cover-up. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. You can put this in your toe. It operates off of a USB and has an eight-hour battery life. It's the personal ozone generator. It is the personal ozone generator. If you want to check it out, go to scentlockenforcer.com. That's S-C-E-N-T-L-O-K enforcer.com. Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast, powered by Scentlock Enforcer, episode number 176. John Stallone, Spot and Ambush. Deer are lazy, force funnels, and buck kills between 10 and 2. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Today's show is sponsored by the Scentlock Enforcer, the Eurohanger, and Morris's Sporting Goods. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. Hi, I'm Dustin Kaismore from Kaismore's Back to Nature Taxidermy in Ohio, and I am about to push play on my favorite podcast, and it should be yours too, the Big Buck Registry, Big Buck Podcast. Hey y'all, Crystal Mahoney with Whitetail Widowmakers here, and you must be really, really smart because you just hit play on the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. This is Sam Ubel from Whitetail Adrenaline, and I'm pressing play on one of my favorite podcasts, Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast. My name is Jay, and I cannot say thank you enough for joining us once again, listening to the show each and every week. And I know you're one of those diehard deer hunting fans that are tuning in. We, you know, the downloads are impressive. We we are growing leaps and bounds every single week. We're, we're way ahead of what we were last year. And we're about to turn 250,000 followers on Facebook. So I know something's happening. And I know you guys like deer hunting just as much as I do and just as much as my good friend and co-host from Ohio does, Dusty Phillips, who's joining us also. What's going on, Dusty? Man, it's deer gun week here in Ohio, Jay. I couldn't be more happier. I'm trying to get my sights, my crosshairs on a nice Ohio buck. Uh, Ain't happening yet, but uh, maybe time here, time for the show here Saturday morning. That'll be signed sealed delivered i hope so man i'm pulling for you it's you've had an interesting run this year well that i have but uh, you know it's all part of the game and you just uh keep playing till you you either get a touchdown or your grand slam or whatever you want to call it yeah well i've uh, i've got as the show airs i've got one more day of rifle and then it's bow season till the 15th and then that's the season so 
I don't know what's going to happen. I just know that when it's my time, it's my time, and I'm just going to make sure I'm out there to give myself that opportunity. And I have some spots that have been beat up a little bit, meaning that they've seen some pressure. So now I've just got to hope that something's moving through. And I'm always finding new places to hunt. In fact, today it was pouring rain. And I really didn't have much time to do much of anything. I didn't really have time to get out in the woods. But you know what I did is I drove some other back roads that I've never been on, took out my, my app, and I found out where the boundary properties were, got some contacts for some property that's actually technically posted. I've talked to the chief of police about some of the people that own these pieces of property, what kind of people they are, and uh, actually got some great data from the police department today about where all the deer hit are usually hit over the last two years in my town. Yeah, that makes sense, Jay. That's a, a great uh, place to utilize some good information. Yeah. So I learned a lot about some prominent landowners in town, and I learned a lot about where deer tend to cross in town, both during the season and after the season. And that'll give me some indicators of where other places are in the pla- the town I live in as to where I should probably start focusing even more than I do now. And that was all done simply by scouting around and talking to people so it's amazing how much scouting you can do with actually not stepping in the woods oh yeah for sure it uh it definitely is a, a tool that you can utilize just by either catching the, the saturday breakfast at the local restaurant or going to the police department or just making a few phone calls to some buddies that maybe you hadn't talked to you in a little while that's right that's right very much so I wanted to kind of bring everybody up to speed on our little tree stand harness project we've got going on. I didn't really expect it would to take off the way it has, but we get a pretty much a request or two or three each and every week for our spare tree stand harnesses. And we've got people actually donating their old tree stand harnesses, and they're not expired. These are the ones that came in, in tree stands that we bought over the last year, so they're still in great shape. And we're finding that there are a lot of people out there that use tree stands that are older that never got one or can't find them or can't afford them or whatever we're actually sending out our tree stand harnesses that are in still great shape to the people that need them and like neil pendleton for example is is now donating the the tree stand harnesses that came with his tree stand and and i think collectively we all buy a lot of tree stands every year and these it's a great place to to send these harnesses out to the people that need them because most of us have harnesses that we bought that are probably a little more uh, advanced than the ones that come with it, but they're still still usable. And the, the person that contacted me this week was a guy by the name of Jimmy Perventure. Turns out he's in, he's in New Hampshire, and I will be delivering, hand-delivering, this one to Jimmy Perventure um, sometime over the weekend. So if you, have a, if, you need, if you have a need for a tree stand harness, please reach out to either me, Dusty, or Jim, Jay at Big Buck Registry, Jim at Big Buck Registry, or Dusty at BigBuckRegistry.com and let us know if you need a tree stand harness too. Yeah, Steve White uh, sent a message in saying he needed one. So, Steve, your your harness is on its way, buddy. Perfect, man. This is, like I said, this, is, this whole project has blown up into something bigger than I thought, and I think there's something else that's... I don't know what this is going to lead to, but I've got good feelings about this. I think this might be our thing, and I haven't quite decided how this is all going to look, but I've got some ideas brewing in my head. But anyway, stay tuned for that. Um, our, our guest this week is John Stallone, and John is uh, a, a big West hunter. 
Yeah, he lives in Arizona, and he hunts a lot of the country, but specifically, um, he hunts out west. So he's always chasing those those the big game, the big muleys, the the sheep, and the the big horns. And he's a big bow hunter. Um, he's also hunted out east. He's hunted in Maine before, so he's familiar with some of the territory around here. And I actually was a guest on his show recently. And the name of his podcast is Interviews with the Masters. And John is a very talented deer hunter. I think uh, when I asked him to send me a couple pictures to be the artwork on this show, he actually has killed some 200-something deer, and uh, he had a hard hard time picking which one he wanted to send. So if you know somebody that's killed that many deer, you know that he is a very talented hunter. And I recognized this when I was listening to his show, and I thought he'd make a pretty interesting guest. And some of the things he did on Facebook, he's actually got a good YouTube following, And some of the things I watched him do on YouTube were pretty entertaining. And a lot of it has to do with just keeping track, kind of doing a daily log of what you're doing as a hunter. So it was pretty interesting. Again, John Stallone interviews with hunting masters. But before we get to John, let's turn to Jim Keller with the Deer News. The Deer News this week is sponsored by the Eurohanger. You don't have to spend big bucks to hang your big buck. Get yourself a Eurohanger. Facebook.com forward slash Eurohanger, E-U-R-O-H-A-N-G-E-R. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Teen Kills Deer Finds Parachute in Its Antlers. This story was featured in the USA Today website and was written by Mike Organ of the Tennessean newspaper. Brady Hempen, 15, has killed nearly 50 deer since he started hunting when he was just five years old, but never one like the buck he shot recently at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Hempen noticed the big deer earlier in the day with something he could not identify wrapped in its antlers. Hempen, who is from Paducah, Kentucky, shot the deer from 25 yards away using a muzzleloader during the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency youth hunt. The deer had a parachute and canister from a military flare, which had been launched at the Army base, tangled in its antlers. Hempen was only able to count 11 points in the rack as the parachute was covering some of the points. Hempen decided not to remove the parachute and is having the head and rack mounted with it all still in place. I think it just builds character on the hunt, Hempen said. The parachute was one of the main reasons why I shot him. I'd never seen anything like it. It was just neat. Hempen estimated the parachute had been tangled in the deer's antlers for at least three months. There's still velvet on the rack underneath the parachute where he couldn't rub it off, Hempen said. That tells you it had to have been there since August or early September. The parachute did not appear to cause the deer any discomfort. Of all the deer he has killed, Hempen said this one was among the most memorable. I'm very proud of all of them, but he's up there for sure as one of my favorite deer, Hempen said. Hunters kill 196,000 deer during Wisconsin gun season. This article was featured on the WISN ABC Channel 12 website. Hunters killed nearly 197,000 deer during Wisconsin's traditional nine-day gun season this month, down 6% from last year's harvest, according to preliminary estimates the Department of Natural Resources released Tuesday. The data shows hunters killed 196,785 deer statewide during the season, down from 198,057 last year. The DNR also reported that it has sold 598,867 gun deer licenses through the end of the nine-day season on Sunday. That's down from about 13,510 licenses from the same point last year. The DNR offers a number of other gun deer seasons besides the nine-day, but the number suggests thousands fewer hunters took to the woods during this year's nine-day deer season than last year. They did kill more antlered deer this year than last, taking 97,892 antlered animals compared with 92,610 in 2015. 
The northern forest zone was the only region where the hunters killed more deer than last year, taking 32,400 deer compared with 25,444 in 2015. That's encouraging news for hunters in that area, as well as for the DNR game managers, who have been trying to rebuild the northern herd in the wake of two harsh winters with buck-only restrictions. As a side note, the agency issued a news release saying wardens are investigating five non-fatal hunting incidences in Waukesha, Oconto, Ozaki, and Taylor counties. Ohio's deer gun season opens with more than 18,000 deer harvested. This story was originally posted on the Ohio Department of Natural Resources website. Hunters checked 18,776 white-tailed deer on Monday, November 28th, the opening day of Ohio's deer gun hunting season, according to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. In 2015, 22,253 deer reported the first day of the deer gun season. Ohio's deer gun season remains open through Sunday, December 4th. Two additional days of deer gun season, which are Saturday, December 17th and Sunday, December 18th, are available for people to hunt with firearms. Ohio ranks 5th nationally in resident hunters and 11th in the number of jobs associated with the hunting-related industries. Hunting has a more than $853 million economic impact on Ohio through the sale of equipment, fuel, food, lodging, and more, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation's Hunting in America, an Economic Force of Conservation publication. This article goes on to break down the harvest numbers by county, so please check it out for additional details. Vermont Wardens, Robotic Deer Decoy Nabs Man Shooting from Truck. This story was originally reported on the NECN.com website and was written by Jack Thurston. The Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife said a robot assisted wardens in busting a man accused of shooting a rifle from the driver's seat of a truck. Justin Andrews, 22, of Colchester, is accused of firing from the vehicle Sunday afternoon. The department occasionally uses deer decoys with animated heads to catch people firing from public roads, which is illegal in Vermont. Permitted hunters must be at least 25 feet off the road before discharging their firearm, said Jeremy Schmid, a game warden from the Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife. The suspect is also accused of speeding from the scene after game wardens announced their presence, but they caught up with him just a few miles down the road following a pursuit. Andrews was cited to appear in court in January to answer to the charges. If he is convicted, he could be fined, losing his hunting and fishing privileges in Vermont, and may have to forfeit the rifle to the State Fish and Wildlife Commission. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Thanks to Jim Keller for the Deer News. Without further ado, here's John Stallone. John Stallone, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm awesome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Doing well. It's always a pleasure to speak to somebody who's uh, hunting passionately, as I am. And, yep. Uh, I can relate to guys like that and gals. and It's, uh, it's, it's always refreshing. Talk to somebody actually from from where you're hunting at. Mostly, it's so different and interesting. It's it's nice to have a guest on that can talk about that fluently. Yeah, um, you know, I'm like a generalist, so I kind of like to hunt everything and everywhere. Yep. I'm more about the adventure than the uh, than the bone on the head. Yep. So um, with that, you know, comes some some pretty cool experiences. That is neat. Now, tell us about yourself and where you're at right now. Um. Well, I wear a lot of hats. Okay. I am. The marketing director for the Hunting Channel Online. Yep. Um, I have my TV show, Days in the Wild, yep. which I've been uh, producing for the last 12 years. 
I've been doing the hunting channel for 14 years now. Um, I have my own podcast, Interviews with the Hunting Masters, and we're going, this year we started season seven, and it's the first year that I brought it public because it was only available on the Hunting Channel online if, uh, if you were a member. Oh, no kidding. So Very interesting. A, yeah, this is the first time. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of neat because um, bringing it to the masses brings a whole new level. You know, it's like a different, uh, you get more people interacting with you. It's not just the, you know, 7,000 members of the Honey Channel or whatever. It's, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people. That's right. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, there's interaction. We're on the TV show. So I have, uh, my show is, is strictly on the internet, but I reach like 4 million people yep. with my TV show, yep. uh, which is actually a lot more than you can do on TV. Most people think... Oh, well, you know, 40,000 subscribers to direct TV or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But it's not more than like 130,000 people watching at one time. Right. Uh, believe it or not. So yeah, we reach a lot of people, but there's no interaction with this. There's an interaction. There's people commenting. There's people, you know, asking questions, throwing things in them. It's kind of a different deal. Um, so yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I'm, it's... I'm really enjoying it. It's a, it's a new, uh, it was getting a little monotonous. Actually, I had stopped doing it for about a year. And then I brought it back and brought it, like I said, brought gotcha. it to the masses, so to speak. So you almost pod faded, but you, you came roaring back and opened it up to a lot yeah. more people. Gotcha. Well, yeah, thank you well, for doing that. That's the other thing I like about talking to you is that you're a fellow podcaster. And I think it's a unique breed, to be honest. It's not too often. Yeah. I mean, you've got your YouTube channel going on, and, and that's something that, that I, I can't wrap my head around yet. I mean, I, someday I'd like to do that, and I'd like to pick your brain about that. But us podcasters, man, we got to stick together. Absolutely. Absolutely. The last hat that I wear is I'm, I'm the content coordinator, um, or the contributor coordinator, rather, excuse me, for the, uh, the Outdoor Insiders. Tell me about your your uh, YouTube channel. Now, this is a phenomenon. I mean, we're a little off track here because we're here to talk hunting, but we're a little, uh -huh. uh, this YouTube phenomenon. You know, I see uh -huh. more and more people going to YouTube to produce their shows to create their content. And right. I think it's because there are people out there that are consuming that content from that medium as opposed to Absolutely. regular television. My kids do that. They've been doing that since they don't even know what regular television is anymore. Yep. It's as foreign to them when I tell them that our phones used to be plugged into the wall. That's how strange yep. it is to them. So yep. when did you realize like this was a, a, the place I needed to go? I actually got involved with YouTube right from the get-go. Okay. Before, it, when it was a fledgling thing and nobody even knew about it. And it sucks because I, had I invested as much time as I did in so many other mediums and so many other things and being on TV, I was on TV for a real short stint. And if I would have invested all my time into YouTube, I would have been way further along and actually probably even making a living just from my YouTube. I know guys out there that make a living just off their monetization from YouTube. Absolutely. It's, um, it's the weirdest yeah. phenomenon out there as far as make, I can't conceptualize it yet. I know it's happening and there are definitely, right. there are even guys in the hunting industry that are doing just YouTube channels yeah. that are making a living at it. Um, and right. who have, who are in a family of YouTubers who have other non-hunting channels. They're doing even better than than that but but still oh yeah it's crazy yeah. i mean literally my kids watch other like some of their favorite channels are watching other people play video games oh play play with their toys yeah that's what my that's what my girls watch they watch other kids opening up toys and playing with toys i'm like dude you got a whole 
room full of toys. Go play with them. Right. Go make your own video. You don't have to watch. Exactly. You know, my, my little one, well, my, my youngest girl, it's not my little one, but my youngest girl, Olivia, she wants to make YouTube videos. And she's like, Dad, let's make a YouTube video. I'm like, okay, put it together. Let's do something. And then the camera goes on and she shuts up. So, but I have a feeling she's going to be doing that pretty soon. She re- right. I mean, she, if I, if I let her, she would watch YouTube from morning till night. She'll just lay on the staircase with a YouTube, with the iPad six inches from her face and watch YouTube the whole, exactly. the whole day. It's crazy. It is. It's crazy to me. Yes. And your the content that you can find on there is just as rich and, and more readily available when you want it than, yeah. than regular television. I, there was some, like I want, there was a show I wanted to watch and we're going, I mean, we're going off on a way tangent here, but there was a show I wanted to watch and it was an old, old show. And I was looking for it on, you know, the Roku channel, uh, oldies and I couldn't find right. it. And somebody said, you can find that on YouTube. And literally I typed it in and there it was. So everything's there, and there's a, there is a whole movement of young YouTubers um, and people that are a little older that have adopted and have recognized this as a powerful place. Uh, hunter, right. Hunters, too. And I love that the hunters are getting into it. And I love what you're doing because you, you, I think what you're able to do with YouTube is exactly what YouTube was meant for. And I'm glad you identified that because it's not – every day that you find somebody that embraces technology the way it should be embraced. And I, and I look at your channel, I look at some of the other hunting channels are doing very well. And I think you're exactly in the right spot. Thank you. Thank you. I I mean, like I said, I have, I have aspirations and goals to bring it to different, different levels. Um, I used to do a lot of gear reviews and a lot of how to type stuff on there. Uh, and those went over very, very well. Some of my, you know, some of the videos that I have that had like the 2 million views and stuff like that on them are, are the how to's. I, I did a lot of bow building stuff back in the day. Yep. Uh, you know, self bows and stuff like that. Yep. And those videos still every day, you know, they, those are the ones that get hit. It's crazy. That's uh, actually, that's one of the ones I watched. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was neat. How do you feel about being in front of a camera? I mean, you're probably comfortable now. Was there ever time when you were like, this is really weird? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you look at some of my first TV shows, you can see how co- uncomfortable I am fidgeting okay. and looking away from the camera, looking all, you know, just, you could just tell. Uh, and then I see myself now, like I could talk in, in front of a camera, like, you know, that's like how it's easy for me to do a live thing on, on, on Facebook because I have just as much confidence talking to you if you were standing in front of me as talking to your camera, you know, it, just, right. it doesn't, it's old hat now, you know, right. Same thing with, you know, same thing with the podcast. Um, you know, I'm sure that you, you experienced this too. The first couple of times you might've interviewed people, it was a little more robotic and a little more like you had a little, you had more notes written down and it wasn't so much yes. from the hip and right. You know, yeah. Well, uh, and, yeah. Back then it so. felt like I was, uh, I was nervous as heck. It's like, man, I don't know why these guys would want to talk to me about anything, but let's go. And I felt like Chris Farley, you know, doing his interview. So like, <laughs> remember that time? Remember that? that was awesome, man. That was awesome. You know, I didn't, I didn't, yeah. I didn't feel like I was carrying a conversation particularly well. And it, I wasn't, you know, you go back and listen yeah. to some of the old tape, like, this is awful, but, yeah. you, but you, you grow and, and you learn from it and you get better and Absolutely. eventually you feel comfortable. And these days I'm as comfortable in front of a microphone as, as anything. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you're very well spoken. You, 
you know, do a lot of ums and, you know, you can, you can tell what, you know, when somebody has to really stop and think when they, when there's like a lot of big pauses and stuff right. like that. And, right. and that doesn't always come off good, you know? And, and I, I think you do an excellent job of just, it's like listening to two guys both on the phone is what it is. <laughs> That's what it is. Right. But, right. You know, when so two guys are doing that. You, you very rarely will you, will you hear an um, uh, it's, it's there and I used to do it a lot more, but these days I seem to be able to hone it in some, it's still there. It still comes out, but I'm much better than I used to be. Well, that's fascinating. Tell tell me about where you call home. Well, I live in Arizona. Uh, I'm sure you can tell from my accent that I wasn't born here. I'm originally from New York, but I've been living in Arizona since 1991. So now I've officially lived here a lot longer than I've lived uh, in, I, I only lived in New York till I was 16. Okay. And, whereabouts uh, in New York? I'm, well, I was born in Brooklyn. Okay. And I moved out to Long Island from the time, about, about eight years old. So from eight years old to 16, I lived in West Islip in Suffolk County. Gotcha. Um, and my wife is from New York. Most of my friends are from New York. Uh, I hang out with all my family and my cousins and stuff like that. those are my closest people, you know, and they're all from New York. So yeah. that's kind of why the action stuck. I was going to say that's, um, that's the accent I hear is Brooklyn, Long Island. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's depending on who I'm with, <laughs> who I'm talking to, it comes out a lot worse. Right. Um, right. <laughs> but I, I go back to New York almost every single year. Uh, I go back to hunt, uh, Eastern Long Islands. It's one of my favorite places to hunt. It's kind of where, it's where I learned to bow hunt. Um, hmm. You know, I, I learned how to rifle hunt upstate New York, yep. but I kind of picked up bow hunting in Long Island because you can't rifle hunt. Right. And it was kind of a necessity. And it was, I had a couple of friends that were like, they were into bows. They really weren't into hunting. And I'm like, okay, I'll teach you guys how to hunt. And you show me how to shoot the bow. And, you know, and then that's kind of how it all became. And I learned it on my own. Because um, my dad, my dad was a hunter. He was a rifle hunter, but his idea of hunting was walk in the woods, find a spot, sit next to a tree, you know, a big orange suit and eat Italian cheeses and salami and wait for something to walk by. You know, that was, right. that was hunting. So. Yeah, that's that's but, pretty much from the way my dad taught me how to hunt is, you know, with him it was, you know, uh, triscuits and lamb's tongue that you could buy pickled in a jar. That was his idea of a good time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's the I, grossest I, thing I've ever seen, but all right. <laughs> Uh, us Italians, we know how to eat well, so we we eat good all the time. Doesn't matter what we're doing. Right. You get back to you get back to the truck after a morning of hunting. There's a there's a a, a tray of lasagna or something for yourself. But, <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, but uh, and and, I, and oddly enough, my dad was a very successful hunter. He, he just had a knack for picking spots. I think. Right. Um. But every year he got a deer. I mean, whether it was a doe or a buck or whatever, but every yeah. year he got a deer. And, uh, yeah, no, and, and, you know, my, my childhood was spent, you know, my dad would take me early in the morning before school. We'd take the BB gun. We'd go out in the woods. We'd go shoot squirrels, whatever, you know? Perfect. And, um, yeah, that's kind of how it started. I mean, I shot, I mean, I, my, I say I shot my own first deer at five years old. My dad made me hold the gun with them and we shot a spike right. while I was, I was five years old. So that was my first, uh, you know, experience. Um, which I don't recommend to people because that almost ruined me because that kick was so bad that I almost never wanted to touch a gun again. Right. But, uh, right. but I kept going. I kept going. That's interesting so. that, I mean, your dad, our dads are so frequently the, the people that we can credit for our first interests 
and experiences in the woods. My my dad was definitely there. My grandfather, my uncle, to an extent. Um, that, mm-hmm. That's where it all came from. Sounds like you had a similar experience. And Long Island, what a great place to learn how to bow hunt. Yeah. I mean, the opportunities must have been just endless. There's a lot of deer. Exactly. Right. So you could you could shoot and and mess up a million times until you get it right, and it, there'd still be more yeah. opportunity. Yeah. I, I, I've never gone, well, since I've been an adult, I've never been hunting in New York and not harvested a deer. Right. Not even harvested. I mean, harvested a buck. I harvested a buck and a doe every year for the last 12, 15 years. Uh, that's a, I'm envious. That's fantastic. Very cool. So you're a, you're a certified deer steward from yep. QDMA and Clemson University. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, um, I got to a point in my life where I needed and wanted to do something different. Uh, it's kind of a weird story. Well, basically, when everything when everything crashed, the market was going to crap in like 2006, mm-hmm. um, 2007, more or less, actually. I went back to school because I had sold my swimming pool business, um, and I wanted, you know, I had the hunting thing going on. I was doing all this other stuff in hunting, and I said, I, you know, I want to become, I want to work for a fishing game wildlife industry or something, you know, something to that effect, something in hunting that I needed a degree. So I went to Colorado State University. Uh, I did the distance learning program and I got my uh, master's in rangeland management and ecology. Okay. And with that, one of the one of my classes, I end up taking a class at Clemson for a uh, certified deer manager or deer steward. Uh, and it's, it's a program in conjunction with QDMA. Okay. Uh, and it's a semester, it's just a semester long class. Um, followed by uh, a series of tests and, and, you know, criteria that you need to uh, get certified. So gotcha. I got my stage one certification. Gotcha. That's pretty neat. Uh, it's, uh, do, do they give out a lot of these or is this something that you, it's, um, it's one of those? I don't know how many they do a year, um, okay. but, you know, I think anybody can get certified for the stage one through uh, QDMA, QDMA. I don't know what they, how or they do it, but for it to count for my, you know, for college credit and all that stuff, I had to do it as a whole class. Um, so the certification is from QDMA, the certificate, um, a professional certificate, I think it might be called, is through, was through Clemson. Okay. Um, and I also have a, I also have a, I got a, like a two year certificate from, uh, Ken Foster in forestry that, uh, I did in conjunction with my rangeland management and ecology deal. So, um, and uh, consequently, consequently, I'm not using any of it because while <laughs> while course. I went back to school, of course, uh, I ended up getting my my pool business back because the person I sold it to ran it into the ground. Yep. And uh, long story short, I bankrupted that company, started a new one, okay. and I'm still I'm still building, remodeling, and servicing uh, commercial pools. So we do like hotels and uh-huh. uh, you know. Homeowners associations mo- mostly is my main bread and butter, and apartment complexes and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so that's uh, that's what pays the bills because uh, hunting for me does not pay the bills. Right. Even I've been offered a lot of really good good jobs in hunting, but um, the crappy part about that is you get a really good job in hunting and then you hunt a lot less. And right. I've built my pool company so that it's it can be very hands off when I want it to be, uh, as long as I have cell phone service. I can run my company. I have built an app where I can track my guys and everything. So this is what affords me the time to do what I do. 
because my TV show and all my other hunting adventure, adventures, basically, uh, to put it plain and simple, is I make fifty thousand dollars and I spend sixty thousand dollars. That's you know that's what it is. So right, you know, right, it's, right. it's definitely not going to feed. It's definitely not going to feed my three children and and uh, keep my fancy schmancy wife uh, happy. So. Um, <laughs> Oh, that's funny. So, but no, that's when I tell everybody, it's like, oh, I want to get into the hunting industry. I want to do what you do. And I'm like, well, listen, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Their money is not what you think it is. Yeah, you can make money. But if you talk to almost every other person out there that has a TV show, 90% of them are self-funding it. Right. And almost all of them are, that's just a, a, a secondary thing. They have a day job or they that's have right. a thing that brings them in their main bread and butter and again affords them time to do what they want to do so i always tell them to get into a career that you can make enough money to support your habit <laughs> and gives you enough time to do it that's exactly that. it that is that is it in a nutshell there are so many people that are doing hunting television or or any of the stuff and if you think that this is a money maker it is not for the nope. vast majority of the people that are doing this, there are a few that are making oh, yeah. a career out of it. Exactly. But the m most of us, including myself, are doing this because we love it. We love mm -hmm. what we're talking about. We love the medium that we're practicing in. And it gives us the opportunity to hunt and learn from those things we talk about and then apply them to our own hunts. That's basically Absolutely. in a nutshell. Are we making some money? Yeah. Yes. Are we making a lot of money? Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. Nope. No. Nope. No. Do we all have other jobs? You're darn right we do. And that's Absolutely. just the reality. But that's okay because it's still fun and it's exciting and it's just another aspect of hunting that we can engage in. Exactly. Exactly. You know, like I said, there's jobs out there. I've, I've been offered six-figure jobs. But the problem is with that is I'd probably be going hunting maybe three, four trips a year instead of 12, 15 that I'm doing now. Right. So, you know, yeah, just so I, just so I could say that I'm, you know, whatever – of this company or whatever that company. Yeah. It's not, uh, and that, that's a, I mean, that might be a great goal for somebody. Hey, because there's a lot of people out there that would much rather, uh, you know, have a job that they love, which of course, you know, is important. Uh, for me, I, I don't love pools, at least not anymore. I, I really used to enjoy creating back in the day. Uh, but I do love the freedom my, my business gives me. And I do love, uh, I love my situation. So it's a good situation to be in. I think if you can give yourself yeah. more freedom and more hunting trips and more time in the woods and still balance the family and still balance the, the regular job that pays the bills, uh, that's mm -hmm. the, that's more or less the way to go. I think you get yep, locked absolutely. into, and I think if you do engage in that full career, it almost takes away from some of the love that, that got you there in the first place. Absolutely. That's my theory anyway. So you've, you've got a, a, a Big time YouTube channel. You're certified deer steward. You hunt a lot, but you have a variety of hunting that you do. It, mm -hmm. You're not locked into just deer. Um, being where you are, it must be a playground. It must be as it's more vibrant, I would say, species wise, where you are now oh, yeah. compared to hunting Long Island. Granted, um, you know the opportunity in Long Island when you were learning to bow hunt was fantastic, but the yep. variety you're into now must be amazing. Tell me a little bit about your hunting out there. Well, here in my home state of Arizona, we have mule deer and not just one species of mule deer, really, because we have basically the Rocky Mountain variety, which you find in the, you know, upper high elevations in, in the Ponderosa Pines and up in the, in the Aspens. Um, 
we have the Kaibab mule deer, which is a genetically uh, isolated species of mule deer. And then we have our desert mule deer. Um, and then we have our coos deer, which is um, a very small whitetail, for those of you who don't know. Small body whitetail. Okay. It can grow racks to, you know, 150 inches if, if given the right scenario. But a really good buck, a, a Pope and Young buck, is, is only 67, and a Boone and Crockett's 100 inches. Um we have black bear, we have antelope, we have, of course, we're very well known for our elk herd here. Right. Um, mountain lion, every predator here you can think of. Even you got jaguar, but of course you can't hunt those, but they're neat to see. Jaguar? Uh, oh, you, I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's not something that you're going to see very often. It's probably, I mean, I think they estimate somewhere around 10, you know. Right. Um, but still. Yeah. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I learned something today. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... We got a lot, a lot, of, a lot of small game opportunity too. I mean, we got a lot of quail. Three again, three different quail: scale quail, merge quail, wow. and uh, gamble. Um, you know, a couple different fox. You know, badgers. Everything <laughs> they got everything over here. So it's it's fun. Quadamundi, uh, which is something I've yet to shoot, which I want to really bad. Huh. I've, I've been wanting to get a quadamundi with my bow. They're uh, they're also known as desert monkey. We have javelina. Javelina hunting's one of the funnest things to hunt with a bow. Wow. Um, but I try not to pigeonhole myself to Arizona because like most Western states, everything is a draw. And even though right. I am a resident, there are a few opportunities that I could do over the counter. Yep. Um, but I still have to draw elk tags. I still have to, you know, draw rifle tags if I want them. Um, so I, I really, I travel everywhere. I really, um, in the last few years I've had a very similar route. Um, you know, I kind of start my season off in California really early in July because their, their season starts in July yeah. for blacktail. Yeah. And then, uh, I come back home and I hunt here in Arizona and then I make my way to, to, uh, Utah and then from Utah to Wyoming. And, uh, then hopefully by that time I've drawn an elk, I, I have an elk tag that I draw and I'll either go to Montana or here in Arizona or, uh, Colorado or, you know, someplace that, uh, offers some good elk hunting opportunities for the rut. And, uh, you know, and then it's just kind of whatever tag I draw. I actually literally put in for about 40 tags a year and I average somewhere in the 10, you know, 10 tags, drawing about 10 tags a year. And then I kind of utilize the rest with over a counter or going, you know, whitetail hunting or whatever. Right now I can just go buy it, go buy a license. Um, typically takes about 14 hunts to make 12 shows a year. Okay. So it's, I always, it's almost like there's a season in and of its, of it, in and of itself when it comes to applying for tags for Western hunts? It's a, it's a job. It's a it's job. It's a freaking job. Yes. Yeah. I've only this applied once. Year, I've, I've never actually been pulled, but I, I applied once, and it was a process. But but the buzz, I mean, I equate it to, um, like, I guess, and I haven't really done this, but I equate it to what, like, uh, NFL fans must uh, yeah. deal with when it comes to um, <laughs> fantasy football. That's exactly what it is. Okay. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> That's a good, good analogy. Just sitting there looking at statistics, looking at, you know. And for me, see, a lot of guys uh, play the trying trying to get the best trophy unit, which I think is a lot less uh, intense. Because, yep. okay, you know, the trophy units are well known. Me, because I need to have so many tags to make my shows, um, I'm always playing what's my best chance of getting a tag and having the best opportunity to harvest it. So it's a, like, it's a constant, like, right. you know, statistics lesson here. And it's just, uh, 
So last year I actually got hunting pool involved. Uh, they sponsored my show and they, yep. they took care of my, took care of my tags, which was nice because I, for one, um, I didn't have to mess with it. And then, you know, I would suggest anybody kind of get involved with that because if, if you're not the type of person that wants to take time, but you really want to have those opportunities to go, that's a, it's a no brainer because they don't really charge you that much. You know, it's a couple hundred dollars, I think, you know, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a game. And sometimes I, I, sometimes I miss it a little bit because it's a little fun doing it yourself and it gives you something to do in the off season. Cause I don't do much, uh, in the way of hunting in February. That's my pact with my, or February me, and spring. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's my pact with my, with my wife come the end of February to, um, you know, July, I'm pretty much, you know, all about the family, all, you know, home every once in a while, I'll, you know, I'll do like a mid spring bear horn or something like that. Um, but I, I've, I've literally cut those out probably since my first child was born somewhere around that time, like yep. six, seven, no, about seven years ago. So, so t- tell me how a kid from Brooklyn <laughs> ends up in Arizona. Uh, well, I had an uncle that moved out here and my dad was tired of paying ridiculous amount of money in property taxes a year. Mm. And we, we were thinking about moving to Florida. Actually, we hadn't gone down to Florida, just like most East coast people do Northeast, you know, my dad wanted something different. He wanted a better life for us. He didn't want to have to spend all his money. And we came out to visit my cousin, uh, excuse me, my uncle out here and he fell in love with it. There's like olive trees all over the place. The, you know, the prickly pear cactus. It actually reminded him a lot of Italy. No kidding. Um, which is odd. Italy without the ocean. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Basically, it's the way he described it to me. And, you know, the mountains and so on and so forth. And he was just like, let's move to Arizona. Um, so he got his brother on board. My uncle Joe actually moved here before, uh, the year before we did, just because of the way, you know, uh, the houses, my house, my parents' house didn't sell fast enough or whatever the case may be. But, um, yeah, so I just, that's just kind of how it happened. My dad's like, okay, let's go move. So my uncle Joe was here. I was here. And then my, my, my other cousins and, and, uh, my other aunt, she came. And then, so now I have like a third of my family, maybe a little bit more than that now lives here. A third of it lives in New York and the rest still live in Italy. So, wow. Yeah, so you're covering a decent part of the globe there. Yeah, if you look at the, as the crow flies, that's that's some that's that's a pretty wide range. Very cool. So, the, so if you're hunting all over the place and you've hunted New York, you've hunted. Uh, I think you said uh, in the previous conversation that we had that you hunted the Adirondacks. Some mm-hmm. you hunted Long Island. You've hunted all over the Midwest. Uh, yep. you've, you've hunted hunted the West. That there's a lot of hunting that's going on in your life. And yes, can you draw any similarities or, or, or strategies or techniques that you use no matter where you go? Yes, number one is scent control. For okay, me. scent control and playing the wind is, is is a key component for any hunting anywhere. Okay, you know for sure. I mean that sounds like an easy cop out answer, but it's the truth. Um, but I've kind of because I've hunted everywhere, I've developed a, a really different way of hunting. You know. I always take the best of what I can figure out and I start melding it with the best of other things. Yep. Like for instance, out West, we do a lot of spot and stalk hunting. Okay. And you know, I made my bones and I, I cut my teeth, so to speak, you know, obviously on whitetail and, and, and most of my early years, even in the industry where we're hunting whitetail, you know, in the Midwest, uh, 
you know, because that was a popular, sexy thing to do. Um, and I still have a big passion for it. I still love hunting whitetail, love cheese stand hunting. Um, you know, that's ambush hunting and learning and figuring out how, how an animal uses an area and setting up a spot to ambush it. So you, you come out west and what you do is you, you, you find a high point or you find a, a vantage point that you can cover a lot of grounds and you, and you use your, your uh, binoculars to find game. Okay. So I kind of melded those two principles together. I do what's called like a spot and ambush. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So like, for instance, most of my mule deer success here in Arizona has been in the rut. Okay. And, and why? Because I... I figure out I figured out the behavior of those animals. Uh, I learned how they use terrain. I, I I figured out what they do by by watching them, by spending time, by reading, by talking to other people, um, so on and so forth. And what I do is I'll find you know a buck with a group of does, and I'll kind of watch the group and see what they're doing. And then instead of me making a stalk or waiting for them to bed and and trying to make a stalk on them bed, because I'm not inherently sneaky. Okay. Um, mainly because I don't have a lot of patience in my stalks. <laughs> right. I'm not the kind of guy that can go like, you know, one yard every 10 minutes like some of these guys can do. Right. I know guys that have just incredible amount of patience and just can go so slow. Right. That's not me. Okay. Uh, I could be quiet when I want to be quiet. That's not the problem. It's, it's, I, it's, a, it's really just a patience thing. Um, so what I do is I, I figure out where they're going to go and I, hump my butt over there and run over there and get to the spot and I wait for them to pass me and that's when I get my shot opportunity. Gotcha. So it's a spot and ambush. Spot and ambush. I, and what are you yeah. doing on the at the ambush ambush spot? Are you getting into tree stands and things like that? Or are you just No, no, okay. no, no. I just find cover on the ground or uh you know, I basically look for what I call forced funnels or forced uh points of entry where where I know they have to come through yep. if they're coming this way. Okay. And I set up uh, so that they they have to cross me on a trail within my bow within my bow range. Okay. Um, so and and I've learned to shoot really far, so that that that's a pretty big window for me. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely don't go up and get in tree stands. That okay. would just be too much time. Seems like a, uh, a little too much effort, but yeah. So what what yeah. when you're looking from these high points into these these funnels um, where you know they have to travel, what are you looking for specifically? Well, I'll, I'll look and see if I could pick up the trails themselves. Okay. Uh, especially out west, it's pr- pretty obvious, you know, where you know where there's a uh, lack of vegetation, or just a lot of times you can just see the trail because it's just so beaten. Yeah. Um, you look at that. You you watch the lead does. You try to see what you know what they're thinking about doing. I mean, a lot of times they'll go sixty yards one way, and then they'll make a big loop and go back the other way, and you're like, oh crap, you know, uh, that didn't work. Um, it's not it's not a foolproof. Nothing, nothing is really. But um, for me, it's it's kind of hard to verbalize actually what I look for right. because everything everything can be different in every terrain. It's it's a different thing. It could only be sometimes it can just be a rise, you know. If I like, I know they go over a rise. If I can get get to a point um, that I you know I can use the terrain to to conceal me and and get to a spot where I know if they pop up out of that rise, I'm going to be able to get a clean shot. Um, could be rock outcroppings, could be, uh, you know, a wash. I mean, we have a lot of washes here in Arizona. Um, so a lot of, a lot of different things, a lot of, a lot of anything that you think will direct the movement of the animals, um, just because it's too hard for them to go over or just, I mean, if you know deer, deer are, are 
are actually lazy animals yes. in a sense. They're, right. they're built for conservation. They're going to take the path of least, re, uh, least resistance every time. Right. I mean, a deer can easily jump over a fence at any point of this fence, but it would rather walk 100 yards and cross where there's a pinch point or whatever, right. where there's a, a break in the barbed wire, because I guess it's less energy uh, expended or yeah. less chance of getting hung up or whatever the case may be. But right, but you're right. So right, they will. Yeah, to them that's that's easier. Mm-hmm. So that's how they do it, and if you understand that, you can use that play to your advantage. Right. So, and it sounds like these funnels are they come in a large variety, and yeah. you, you know it just from experience. Of which which yeah, things so- work and which ones don't. Yeah, it's not something I've been able to really. Uh, I just wrote an article on it in uh, Earn Magazine mm-hmm. uh, that that you know sheds a little bit more light on it and gives a little bit more detail than uh, that than we're talking about right now. Um, but I, I'm trying to come up with a, maybe a video or something to kind of more elaborate on it where people can understand it better. Um, although I might, <laughs> I might not want to teach everybody how to do it. So I don't know. Uh, then I don't, then I won't, I won't have the same success. I won't be as, spe- uh, as special, I guess, anymore if everybody could do what I do. Gotcha. Um, but it really, it's, it's taking a lot of time. It's taking a lot of time, uh, learning the animals. That's the most important part. Okay. It's learning the individual behavior of those animals in, in that environment, in that habitat, you know, so like what the desert deer do in the desert are different than what the deer do in the, in, in the Aspen, you know, or, or, or an alpine deer, you know, but I mean, there's going to be a lot of similarities, but at the same time, because they all need the same thing. They all need cover. They all need uh, water and they all need feed. Um, but you know, it's how they use the terrain is going to be different. Okay. And, and learning the, and learning what they do is, is the, is the key. So being a student of the animal that you're trying to, uh, best is, is your best weapon. Really. It's better than any other call, better than any bow, uh, you know, any amount of practice you can do. But learning how and why, what and where deer and elk and antelope and whatever do what they do, that's uh, that's the number one okay. tool can, to keep in the toolbox. Uh, knowing that, can you can you hone it down to a specific animal, not just like the species, but the, and like a, a specific buck that you're going after? Mm-hmm. Are you able to learn the habits of that particular buck and capitalize it, or is that just too much to I mean, you can generalize it, but or, or, are are you capable of doing that where you're hunting yeah. with a specific buck? Like you learn it, you yeah. learn that animal so well. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so this past January, I shot a buck that I had a lot of history with. Uh, he was actually number three on my hit list. No kidding. Um, I had two other, two other bucks that I, I was a little bit more interested in. I had just as much history with them, but I knew the area that they occupied. I knew every Every year, come the rut, this is where they were. And I knew that in the early season, they were four miles over. Because um, I had, you know, through trail, trail camera, through, um, you know, first-person interaction, meaning right. watching them from, from a, you know, a vantage point through the binos. Yep. Um, these three bucks used to hang out. They would, they would hang out together in the summer and early fall. And uh, after they shed their velvet, they would break up. And all three of them would take up... And I don't really know what the acreage is, but I'm going to say each of them had a square mile gotcha. and they really didn't, they didn't mess with each other. Uh, they would definitely run off bucks at other bucks that would come into that, their square mile, but they never went into each other's square mile. They were the dominant buck of their own square mile and of their square mile. And then once 
the rut was over, they back straight back up. Okay. Are these muleys or whitetail? These would be muleys. Muleys. Okay. Uh, now, whitetail, whitetail are here are just are, are really just the same animal as back east in in as far as behavior is concerned and the way that they the way that the rut is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing is that they're far more cagey and far more elusive um, than than an eastern whitetail or a midwest whitetail. Okay. Uh, but as far as behavior is concerned, it's very very similar. Um, you know, their core areas are way way small, like a like a buck would be back east. Okay. Um, you know, they 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 stay they make scrapes and rubs like they do back east. I mean, they're harder to find because they're doing it on Acatillo cactus and you know small Palo Verde trees and mesquite trees and what 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 have you. But um, they they do make that same they give you that same clue with you know that they're occupying an area. The only difference is that when the rut kicks in, their area gets a lot bigger than I think than you would find on the eastern whitetail or midwest whitetail. Interesting. And they'll do a lot more cruising. And they're elusive, you say? Yes. Interesting. Yep. Okay. I just to give you an idea. I watched a band of illegals. Mm-hmm. I was watching this buck, and this band of illegals were coming down the trail, literally fifty yards above this buck. And this buck, he hunkered down and he crawled. Like like a mountain lion would crawl, wow! To get to another bush, and he and he sat in there like a quail would, <laughs> you know, really? just held tight. Yep, and let those let those guys walk right by him. So that's amazing. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, but they're, they're 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 hard. They're hard to spot too. Their coloration is so well suited for their environment, and they have zero uh, what's the word I'm looking for tolerance for you know danger. Right. Um, where like a mule deer. It'll stop and give you that look, you know. Yes, the classic real look. They give, yeah, they, they give you, know, you curiosity. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. and even a white tail back east, you might sit there and like a doe for sure. She'll sit there and blow at you for a little bit. Yeah, a doe will do that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I've had bucks do that too, but not a not a not a coon deer. They'll, they're gone. You know, they don't really look at you very long. Yeah. So. I've always been fascinated with their ability to hide and blend into the background. To the point where, you know, they know you're there. Mm-hmm. You don't know they're there only because they didn't leave. They just decided to blend into the bush and be as stoic as a permanent statue would be. Yep. They don't move. It, that, mm-hmm. you, you, it's amazing that they can hold that still for that long. And, yep. I mean, we're, we're so adapt to seeing movement, but we're not adapt to seeing the pieces of the deer that are still broken up by a, a bush of some sort. Absolutely. Yeah, those are the things that you you learn doing spot and stalk, though. Right, right. You learn to find bedded bucks and just seeing an ear or shiny nose. And, yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. But how, so that helped me That helped yeah. me in the East Coast hunting a lot. I bet. I bet. And it's, it, I'm always, it's still amazing to, to think that they can adapt that way. But yes, it is mm-hmm. a skill set that I think once you figure it out, once you can identify that seeing a piece of an ear mm-hmm. is a good way to, to, to spot a deer, then you can apply that anywhere. That, that, that and scent control, two huge pieces of the puzzle there. Oh, yeah. So when you're out and about hunting, wherever you hunt, does the gear change from place to place? Um, if I'm on an active hunt, meaning I'm going to be doing hiking and stuff like that, um, I typically wear, I like to wear sick gear. Yep. Uh, I find it's kind of for act, active hunting is 
is the best for me. Yeah. Um, when I tree stand hunt, I, I, I tend to go back to the, you know, to the set locks and stuff like that, just cause I like to have that extra protection, yeah. even though I'm like ridiculous about my, my scent control. Uh, but heck, any, any, any level, you know, uh, of security, so to speak, that's going to help me, uh, get one over on a big buck. That's, you know, I killed two bucks, uh, wasn't last year. Last year I did not hunt in, in Long Island. Uh, it was the first year I hadn't hunted in Long Island in a long time. But uh, in 2014, I killed two bucks uh, in two nights, and uh, and both of them were downwind of me. And uh, um, and I just attributed, you know, the wind was going straight out of my, right. you know. And people are always like, oh, you know, you you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You just play the wind. But geez, a lot of times you can't play the wind, right. you know, especially when you're especially when you're in a tree right. stand. And I think I think when people tell me that just play the wind, yes, you can just play the wind. But wouldn't it be cool yeah. if you could play the wind and be upwind yep. of an animal and still win? That's even cooler, right? <laughs> you yep. know, that's yep. because you were so careful with what you uh, went through to make sure your scent was pure when it was. Uh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I killed a mule deer this year in, in Utah, and I was he was directly. You know, in in my scent cone, it was blowing right at him, fifty yards. And you know, the way I see it, once I'm in range and I got my bow drawn back, I, you know, if he smells me at that point, it's too late. You know, so uh, and I just attribute that to my my meticulous scent control. Right. And it's just it's yep. always worked for me. Yep. I get I really I get, a lot of my get friends tease me about it because they you know they kill they kill deer you know uh, on a consistent basis you know also but. And they'll go out there wearing the same camouflage three days in a row. And I'm the guy that changes his camouflage from the morning hunt to the, to the evening hunt. So, oh, interesting. you know, okay. I always have this, I always have this giant duffel bag with like 15 sets of camo and everybody got like this one little bag. I, I come off the plane and, the, and, and, you know, the TSA is like, uh, what is that? A ground blind? <laughs> it's just my big <laughs> duffel bag. But, now why, why change your camo? Is it just to, to change clothes to keep the scent away? Yep. Okay. Yep. Just to keep your, your yep. human body odor. Not that you're thinking that, uh, one set of camo is good for the morning versus a camo that's better. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's all about scent control. Scent control. Okay. All right. That yep. makes sense. Very cool. Yep. All right. So I asked you to think about one of your most memorable deer hunts before we get on. And I'd like to turn to that segment and, and have you walk us through play by play in extreme detail, a hunt that you've been on that really sticks out in your head. Well, uh, I'm going to give you this year's hunt actually. Okay. And, and the reason being is because I spent four years hunting this buck we call Swamp Donkey. Uh, <laughs> buck I shot in, uh, in New York this year. Okay. And I'd probably be on here for another hour if I went through the whole story. Okay. Um, I have, I have an article coming out in Peterson Snow Hunting that gives you the whole play by play on it. So I'm going to give you the short and condensed version of it. Okay. Um, it was about 2012. It was, um, October, 2012. Yeah. I was hunting, uh, in, a, in this woodlot that I had been hunting for, for years in Long Island. That's, uh, bordered by a couple of swamps. And, um, I, uh, I heard something behind me and I, and I peeked through, I was sitting in this big V of an oak tree and I peeked through the V and I looked behind me and here comes this like 130 inch buck. Yeah. Um, and at the time I put him about three and a half years old, just a really good deer for that area. And I, you know, I said to myself, Oh shooter. Okay. And he's coming straight, straight at my tree. There's a rub line 
that he was working that I had found. Yep. Uh, and I didn't know, I didn't have any cameras up or anything. I didn't know what was making that red line. I just knew it was a, a good buff just based on the size of the ropes and the tracks. And uh, he's coming straight at the tree and he gets to just below my tree, but behind, behind me. And he stops and he starts licking a branch on, there's a, one of the branches from the adjacent tree was coming down right below mine. Yeah. And he's sitting there licking a branch, uh, not making a scrape, but he's licking the branch. And he's kind of looking up in my direction because of the way the branches. And a squirrel jumps from the other tree onto the limb that I'm leaning up against. <laughs> and that made him look like right at the squirrel. And the squirrel like came right to me and kind of startled and went up the tree. And I'm yeah. like, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> so and I'm sitting there frozen. And, and it, it seemed like an eternity, but it was probably only like a minute. And he just flicked his tail, turned around, and walked back up the trail that he came in. And I'm like, S-O-B. Right. You know, this yeah. is. I called my wife up. I said, "Why, babe? Listen, you need to extend our trip. We're going to stay for another four or five days. Yeah. You know, at the time my kids weren't in school, so like, so she was. I ended up staying. We, I only had one more day, and we ended up staying. I ended up uh, extending the trip like four more days. Nice. Um, and I never, I never got it. I ended up shooting another buck on the last night, which I had thought was him. I, I and I think. I call him Swamp Donkey Jr. Um, he had all the same characteristics, but he was smaller. Yeah. Anyway, I'll fast forward. Uh, I had encounters with him every year. In 2014, um, I was able to snap a picture of him from my tree stand of him walking away. <laughs> like, wow. every time every time I um, would zig, he would zag. And I just kept putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Right. You know, just, okay. It took me a while to figure him out and what he was doing. Yeah. And then in... Uh, the book that I shot in 2013, I shot a book in 2013, and I went to go blood trail him. He had crossed the street into the neighbor's uh, woodlot, and I actually got permission from them to hunt there. But I also got permission to go after him, but I got permission to hunt there afterwards. And he was standing over my dead deer. He was standing there giving me the proverbial FU, saying, ha-ha, I got you again, you know? And um, that's when I, that's when I, I figured out. I knew where he was betting from that point on because I watched him go into the swamp and I followed him in there and I found his beds and I found all the rubs that were inside the swamp. And yep. that's, that's when he made his mistake in 2000 in the, that year in 2013 mm. that led me to harvesting from this year. Um, really? So anyway, that so, far back he made the mistake. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Okay. Well, I knew where to put my stand and I probably would have gotten him in 2014 the following year. Uh, like I said, I had that one encounter with him, but I only had three days to hunt. So I had two buck tags. Uh, the first evening I had seen him the next day. Um, I shot one buck in the middle of the day. Uh, my first buck in the middle of the day, okay. was, you know, I could go 125 inch buck, yep. uh, three and a half year old season buck. Yep. And I said to myself, well, the last day I'm just going to hold out for swamp donkey. And I held out all the way to last light and I had let a couple other deer pass by me. And at last light, this other buck steps out into this, uh, this little opening, this little clearing that I was hunting on. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I knew if I didn't take him, I wasn't going to have a chance at swamp donkey because it was my last opportunity to hunt. So I ended up shooting him yeah. anyway. Um, and then I didn't hunt in 2015, uh, because I was Ibex hunting. Then my, my normal New York trip is in October. And, uh, and, uh, in the, the first part of October, I was hunting uh, for Ibex in New Mexico. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, so this year, jump to this year, I 
you know, like I said, I, I started putting all the pieces in a puzzle and, and where, where I had seen him in 2014, where the betting area that I found in 2013, I repossessioned my stand a little bit and I, and I knew not to go in there in the mornings because if I went in in the mornings, I wasn't going to see him. I was going to blow him out. So I had a morning spot across the street and an afternoon spot where, where, where he was because he was making a big loop basically. Mm. Okay. And I was watching the barometer. I was watching the moon. Um, and I just, you know, put together whatever little bit of, uh, trail camera information I had on him. Um, and just my knowledge of how he was using the area. And I said, you know what? I need to be in the stands at like 10 AM on his side and sit there till dark. And I, I did this just that. And I shot him at one o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. Uh, cause I knew, I knew he, he made an, like, so it was raining the night before and I knew he was going to come back and freshen up his scrapes, yeah. uh, as they often do. And they always do that in the middle of the day when everybody's back at the lodge, back at, right. back at home, you know, eating lunch, whatever. Um, yeah, they go and freshen up their scrapes in the middle of the day and then they start to go cruise the bedding areas a little bit and then they go lay down and then they come back out of heat in the afternoon. Right. And so I just, again, using my, my knowledge of deer and, and, and my knowledge of what he was doing, I put a plan together and I was able to, to shoot him at 17 yards and he ran about 50 and piled up. And, uh, I, I, I felt like I had shot my, like I did when I shot my first buck when I shot him. Right. I almost fell out of the tree stand. I don't really get buck fever. I don't get, I didn't really get much buck fever when, uh, when I'm shooting them, but I, I, I always get, I always get that rush and that yeah. jittery and whatever after I shoot, but I got it bad. I got it bad. Got it bad. Yeah. Do you think it had something to do no. with the, the length of time? That you were, yeah, you had hunted this deer. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I felt like plus I was having a, I was having kind of a crappy year, uh, and uh, just a lot of things weren't going my way. Well, a lot of things might did not go my way this year. Um, not just in hunting, but just you know work and, and life in general. So I, um, it was just like a really great. Felt like I won, you know. Right. Right. That's awesome. So a couple of things that kind of stuck out. One was that you, three things. One is that you said you repositioned your stand a little. Mm -hmm. What, what did you do there exactly? Um, I, uh, I had found, I never noticed it before because at the mouth of this little trail, there was like some, uh, ramble or not really, what is it? Like raspberry type bush, like a thorny brush. Mm Mm-hmm. So it wasn't real obvious that there was a trail right there. Okay. And it really, I really only moved it like 10 yards. Okay. But the reason why I did that was so that I can shoot down to this one particular trail that I, I, I just knew he was using based on the rubs that were on it. And I, like I said, that trail has probably been there forever and I never really noticed it yeah. because of the way it was covered up. Uh, and, and the reason, the only reason why I did notice it was because I saw this giant rub that was like glowing, you know, those rubs that are just stand out because they're so beat up. Right. Um, and I'm like, Oh crap. And then I just realized that there had been, and, and, and buck trails are like that. They're not like doe trails. They're not heavily traveled. It's one buck that kind of, and it usually parallels other trails. Yep. Um, so yeah, I, I literally just moved it over a couple like two trees over. Um, uh, and, and that afforded me my shot opportunity. I don't think I would have been able to shoot from my, I, my original tree. Yep. Uh, based on the way he went, but, uh, you ten, know, ten, it's hard to, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, but, but, but still you believe that that 10 yards 
gave you the edge you needed. Yeah, it gave me the, it gave me the angle that I needed. The, right. the ten yards wouldn't have made a difference because right. I mean, like I said, I shot him at seventeen twenty seven. Right, right, yeah, not but, the not the distance, but, but the layup, but the but, angle that you you were able to achieve by right. changing it ten yards. I mean, and, and exactly. that was I was trying to say this to a buddy of mine the other day that deer hunting is often a game of inches. And, oh yeah, you know it's, it's not, and, and maybe it's not an inch game really. It's it's a foot game. It's like two or three feet might make that difference between going home with something in your bag and not. Yeah, it's it's that close. And in this case, you know, ten yards to me that's like a game of inches. And that that yeah. probably was the reason you had the angle you had, and probably the reason you had this this wonderful ending to a very uh, long drawn out hunt, really. Uh, the other thing that kind of stuck out, and I, I want to clarify this, is that you said that you wouldn't go in in the morning because you're going to bust them out. What was what was in play there? So uh, I uh, surmised that he was making this big loop. Uh, and what I, I guess I'd have to paint the picture of, of, the, of the landscape a little bit. So my original stand in 2012, where I'd originally seen him, is like a, let's say, seven, eight acres woodlot that has a swamp on either end, million-dollar homes. So a swamp on uh, on the east and a swamp on the west, million-dollar homes on the south, and a little open field. There's an old junkyard, basically, uh, that the deer, because it, like it, it was a field, the deer would congregate there in the evening and stay there till the morning and then filter back into the woods, uh, you know, shortly after uh, daybreak. Okay. And then it would come bed into the, the swamp area and, and where where my original stand was, which makes that a great morning spot because I could slip in there because there's no deer in the dark because uh, they're all out in this field, this little field. It's only like a two, three acre deal, like, you know, 50 deer will go out there, you know? Yep. Um, and I could slip in there and then the deer would filter back in past me in the morning. Um, well, he didn't bed there. He would come and do a loop and, and skirt the edge of the of the swamp and cross the street and bed in a swamp that was across the street. Hmm. Um, so he would make this, like, make this loop. And the only time I would ever see him was in, in the evening when he would do his loop before he would go. So I, I, I kind of messed up the way I said it to you. It's he would do, he would do the loop in the evening yeah. and then, and then uh, go to the field and then he would cross the street and go and go back, you know, uh, after daybreak. Okay. But he would, he would hang out and feed a little bit in the morning in this like oak tree flat that was adjacent to swamp, which is where I hung my stand um, and where all his scrapes were and everything else. Okay. So and I knew that he was, you know, using that area. And that's kind of how I, how I figured it out that I, I shouldn't be there. Um, well, the other thing too, is after I had left uh, in 2014, I told my, my wife's cousin to go hunt my stand to see if he can shoot him. Yep. Uh, and, uh, he bumped deer both mornings, two mornings in a row. Okay. And I said, listen, just stay out of there in the morning. Okay. And he would bump deer and then he wouldn't see deer all day long. Right. It's just a couple of does here and there, but you know, so yeah. Gotcha. All right. So it wasn't just that you knew where the deer was. It's that you knew where the deer was and what time of day he was there. Yep. And that was important. Mm-hmm. That was important. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I knew where my stand was. I would either catch him midday doing his, doing his buck things. Or I would catch him right at right at uh, you know towards towards the last light in the evening where he would come out to cross to go across the street to the field. Gotcha. So, so what time of day did you actually enter the stand that day? I would get in the stand 
Well, the, the day that I shot him, I got in the stand somewhere between 10 and 11. 10 and 11, okay. Uh, and, and, and I would always be in there before noon. I Typically before 1130 is what I like to do is try to get that okay. stand before 11.30. All right, and what was the so, time again that you actually ended up killing him? Like 1.30-ish. Okay, like that. all right. Yeah. Very interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. A lot of big bucks get killed between 10 and 2 o'clock. This is true. This is true, and that's when all the guys are going in for lunch. And, uh, yep. yeah. and I do the lunch thing too, but what I do is I'll go sit that morning stand from an hour before light yep. till about nine, nine o'clock in the morning. And then I'll go eat lunch at the truck real quick, grab a ham, egg and cheese from the belly, whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> and then, and then go climb up on the other stand, you know? Right. So I get that little break, but it's only like a half an hour and you know, so just switching stands and your switch is, you know, the, the, the nine, the, the, the mid nine o'clock hour. Yeah. Okay. I, I usually, I usually sit to about 9am sometimes 930. And I try, like I say, I try to, you know, take a half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe in an hour. And then I try to get in the other stand before that. Gotcha. That's kind of, all right. yeah. And do you stay there all day or is there another break in yeah. between? Okay. No, I stay there all day. You'll stay point. there till, till dark if necessary. Yeah. Because, like I said, there's a good chance I might catch him during the middle of the day. And then, then it's, you know, from about 2 o'clock to about 4 o'clock, there's usually no activity at all. Right. And then uh, then you'll start getting does coming by, feeding, and coming out early, you know, does and fawns, and then some little bucks. And then usually the bigger bucks come out a half an hour to, you know, sometimes an hour, but before dark. Gotcha. Awesome. Very good story. And that's uh, it's a long time frame to hunt a deer, but I think that's more or less the, the time frame you need a lot of the times to, to actually kill that deer. And it might take, yeah. it's not, sometimes it's not just a season. It's like, it might be several, several seasons before you finally put that entire puzzle together. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The, the, the sad thing was, is he was at his peak in 2014. Yeah. Uh, and when I had seen him, he was limping. I, I figured out that he got hit by a car. Okay. Just based on the way the wounds, the wounds looked, because it didn't look like he got shot. Yep. Um, the way the wound looked, and he went he went downhill after that. So when I ended up shooting him, he probably lost about 15 inches, gotcha. 15, 20 inches from where, what he was in 2014. Gotcha. Had he not gotten hit by a car, I, I believe he probably would have been, it would have been a really big deal. I don't know. I didn't want to, because if you look at the picture of him in 2014, he's... He's clearly a 170, yep. you know, that, that class buck. So who knows? He probably went there 190, 200 inch buck, right. but he, 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 reg- he regressed. Right. So, right. Got the, got the injury and that was, I don't, I don't know what he scores. I don't want to score him cause I don't want to be, I'm, I'm, I'm not that way, but I also don't want to be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, <laughs> like upset with the score, you know? Right, right, right. Cause that'll do that to you. You know, you look at a buck and you're happy the way he looks and you're happy about him. Mm-hmm. I mean, and in your head, yeah, you might say, oh, he's maybe 150, 60, whatever, you know. But, you know, if that buck comes back and he scores a lot less than what my brain is thinking, I, 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 that would take away from the experience for me. And I That's right. hate that. That's right. So I'll never score that buck. I don't blame you. I completely understand. All right, it's time for the 10 rapid fire questions, John. Okay. I, uh, I didn't prep you for this, and uh, I like to keep it that way, so I like to hear these off the cuff. I get to know you a little bit better. All right. All right, you ready? Okay. What's your number one hunting tip of all time? Number one hunting tip of all time. Learn the game that you're hunting. Okay. Excellent. We all have these these things that we can't hunt without. And it's some kind of a good luck charm, maybe, or maybe it's an actual device or a tool or something like that. 
other than your firearm, what's that one thing you got to have with you to, to feel comfortable and it drives you nuts if you left it at home or in the truck? Um, I don't have one of those. What okay. I do have is I'm very ritualistic. Okay. My morning routine, my everything I do is a routine. So that that's where my comfort lies. I don't actually have like a trinket or I have a, you know, a favorite release or anything like that. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So you have a routine that you go through that puts you yeah. in the right mind frame for the day. I, yeah. I got I got to eat and poop and everything else. Everything's got to fall the same way. Right. I guess that's the way it is. Gotcha. Yeah, so. All right. What, well, OCD like that. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Uh, what's your biggest pet peeve in life? In life? <laughs> I got a lot of them. Um, <laughs> in hunting is, I'll tell you what my biggest pet peeve in hunting is. Right. I hate when other hunters don't respect don't respect you. Yes. Um, a good example, this year in, in, in Utah, I'm sitting there glassing. I hiked up to a hill. And then, and I wasn't terribly far from the truck or anything, but the people clearly saw where I was. Yep. Come and hike, sit right next to you. Yes. Don't even say a word. Don't say hi. How's it going? Do you mind if I sit here? I'm not. It's it's public land. I'm not going to kick you out of there. I don't own the place. Right. But for God's sakes, I'm sitting right there. I'm a human being. Say hello to me. Right. That's a, that's a acknowledge tough one. me. That's a tough one. Yep. Uh, okay. So, how old are you today, John? Uh, I'm forty. You're forty. What would the 40-year-old John Stallone tell the 20-year-old John Stallone, knowing what you know today? Sure. (laughs) Man, that's tough. I don't know. It's tricky. I don't know that I would want want to alter my life. Okay. I'm all about the adventure, like I said. I don't know that I would have made the same choices and had the same adventures if I would have told myself. I think about that all the time, actually. It's funny you ask me that question. But I think I would say keep doing what you're doing, kid. I was just supposed you're to doing say, a good job. Just just keep doing what you're doing. I was going to say that's that's going to be your answer. You, I would say YouTube. I would say YouTube. YouTube. Yes. <laughs> don't into... don't focus so much on all the other. Yes. More onto YouTube <laughs> than on anything YouTube. else. Yes. Forget all that <laughs> yeah. other stuff. That's all just blah blah. Yeah. YouTube's the answer. All right. You uh, you meet a stranger at a convention, uh, a hunting convention somewhere on the planet, and you strike up a conversation with a stranger. They ask you what you do for a living. What do you tell them? I tell them I'm a professional hunter. That's usually how I introduce myself. Okay. It, right. it, and mainly because I'm more proud of it than saying, hey, I'm a pool guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, would say, well, yeah. I would say I'm a hunter, too. Yep. Yeah. I'm a, yeah I, I tell people I'm a professional hunter. Uh, I, I used to uh, shy away from that a little bit. Um, and really I didn't do any self promoting at all because I was all about the promoting the hunting channel and stuff like that. I just, in the last like four years really started promoting John Stallone as a brand, so to speak. Yep. Uh, so that's, gotcha. if you, if you hadn't heard of me before that, it's because I was really just behind the scenes of everything. Gotcha. So, yeah. Gotcha. Makes sense. All right. What did you have for breakfast <laughs> this morning? What did I have for breakfast this morning? I had a shake. I had a, I frozen blueberries, some acai berries frozen, and it was uh, vanilla pea protein with uh, hazelnut milk. Shit. Wow. All right. That sounds pretty healthy. Yeah, I try to stay healthy. All right. Very good. Uh, not... I had pizza for breakfast yesterday morning, so. <laughs> All right. So it's the yin and yang of life. I get it. Exactly. All right. You get your own blank billboard on a highway. You can say anything you want. It's a blank canvas. What would it say? Again, I'm going to gear this to hunting, but I would say, love your fellow hunter. We're all in this together. 
Excellent. I got a, I got a really big rub with guys who hate on other hunters because of the, you know, because they hunt with a different weapon or because they do something differently or whatever. It just, that we got enough, we got enough fighting with, with the antis and the, and, and all the other people that oppose hunting that we don't need to be fighting between each other. So right. that's kind of my big thing. That's right a now. good one. We, we've got enough to work on. This country is so divided yes. right now. Right. You know, we need, we need, we need to be unified if, you know, as a group. So, right. right. I'm with you. All right. If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops into your head and why? Randy Omer. Interesting. Because, from a bow hunter's perspective or from a guy that I would want to emulate, he would be the guy because he's not flashy. He's very soft-spoken. Um, he's not about, he could be anything he wants in this industry because of his uh, bow hunting achievements. And, you know, he just takes it with a great assault. Super nice guy. Every time I talked to him, he sat down and, you know, talked to me like I was his equal. And uh, so, yeah. Gotcha. Does that okay. matter? I've met a lot of guys in this industry that are not like that, don't have any, and don't have any reason to be the way they are. So, right. No, I, I understand when you say that. All right. What's a day in the life of John Stallone look like? <laughs> Crazy, <laughs> hectic, hair on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I got up at five this morning. Okay. I uh, got on a computer, wrote an article for uh, Finn and Turk. Yes. And uh, my son woke up at six fifteen ish. Help my wife with him, give him a bottle so he, she could take a shower. Then my two girls got up, helped the wife get them out the door. Then I went and made my rounds in the pool business. Came back, I don't know, probably 3 o'clock this afternoon. And then started working on the computer for a little while. Went to family pictures. And uh, now I'm sitting in my Chevy Silverado in, in a parking lot talking to you. <laughs> that was today. Nice. And your mobile podcast studio. Love it. Yeah, exactly. Yep. It's the only place where it's peace and quiet. If I was home right now, the dogs would be barking. Yeah. Yeah, it, it works out really good. Got good acoustics in here. <laughs> it's true. It does. The sound's been fantastic. All right. And finally, what's a deer hunting day in the life of John Stallone look like? Uh, sleeping late. Um, wait for people to show me where deer. And I'm just joking. Uh, no, I'm always the first guy up. Yep. First guy up. I'm always rounding up the troops, uh, you know, getting my cameraman, shaking them, getting awake and getting everybody in the shower, everybody fed, and, you know, ready to go. And I'm, I'm always in the deer stand, you know, an hour, if not more before, before, uh, first light. I, I try to stay as long as possible. Um, there's been many days that I put 15 hours in the tree stand, uh, you know, and when it comes to spot and stalk and stuff like that, that's a little bit easier because you're not stuck in one spot. Um, uh, you know, you can close your eyes for a little bit and lay down, but I'm go, 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 go. When it comes to hunting, um, I'm not the most athletic person, but I'm the type of guy that if I know there's a deer up there, I'm going to go after it. I'll, yeah. I'll make, I'll get up there, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my day in life, I guess. Gotcha. It's, it's just go hair on fire till morning till night. Awesome. Love it. Well, that's the, that's the 10 rapid fire questions, John. You did well. You passed. Um, and I got to be honest, this has been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. 
truly enjoyed listening to you talk about your hunting uh, endeavors and the story of, of the buck that you shot and how long it took you and how you finally put it all together. And uh, just I think you're just one of those quality guys that that we need in this hunting industry uh, as a voice and, and to send your message that we all need to stick together. I think that's fantastic. So, But thank you for joining thank us. You. I appreciate it. I'm honored to be on here. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to John. Uh, he's he's just a wealth of, of knowledge. He's been in the field so often. He knows what he's doing. He's got some great stuff going on on social media. Uh, he's been a YouTuber for quite a while. Um, he wishes that he had uh, found it earlier. And I'm glad he's getting into podcasting. I mean, he's been technically podcasting longer than us. He just kept it private to a lot of his guests. Uh, but, man, that guy knows what he's doing. And, and I can't thank him enough for joining us on the Big Buck Podcast and having me on his show. Uh, I think that was that was very cool, too. So, Well, Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines tip of the week this week? Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about uh, deer movement uh, this time of year. And The Chubby Tines tip of the week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms, bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444-morsessportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods. And uh, based on off what I'm seeing there in Ohio, the, the evening feed's back on. Deer are starting to hit a food source uh, right before dark. If you got that uh, that special spot that's got a food source available for the deer to come to, I suggest you get get your tree stand moved over and focus on that food this time of year. Oh, dude, that's a great tip. In fact, I've noticed that there's a, a feeding pattern kind of starting to set back in as the pressure lays off the woods. Interesting you brought that up. But yeah, that's a great idea. Well, Dusty, it's been a fantastic show, and I want to say thank you to Soundlock Enforcer for sponsoring the show. I wanted to say thank you to the Eurohanger for also sponsoring the show, and I'd like to say thank you to Morse's Sporting Goods for sponsoring the Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. Uh, Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here with me in Big Buck Studios? Shoot me an email, Dusty at BigBuckRacer.com. You can look me up on Facebook, Chubby Tines Outdoors, and if you're on Instagram, shoot me a follow at Chasing Antler. Jay, where can people reach out to you when you're not on the mic? best place is to shoot me an email as well, jay at bigbuckregistry.com. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry, and you'll be part of the 250,000, or almost 250,000, plus diehard deer hunting fans. That's almost a quarter of a million deer hunting fans that hang out. We get to listen to them tell us about the deer they shot, and we get to talk to people from all over the world, talk about the deer hunting they do, and share it with that entire contingent, which is pretty darn cool. So if you'd like to follow us on other social media platforms, you can check us out on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Big Buck Registry. You can follow us on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Big Buck Registry and YouTube. And that's bigbuckregistry.com forward slash YouTube. And likewise, if you want to listen to the show on other platforms other than iTunes, for example, we're on Stitcher, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, and pretty much any other podcast directory that's out there. We, We are present. So... Don't feel like you're going to be left out because there are all kinds of places we're hanging out. And if you don't have access to all that, but you still have YouTube, we actually generate a video of our audio every single week as the show launches. And you can check us out on YouTube as well. Unfortunately, it's time for us to go. The good news is we'll be back next week. So, Dusty, it's been a great show. Thanks again for joining me. Hopefully you're on top of that big deer and hopefully we have some good reports next week. 
Yeah, hopefully so. And uh, thanks again for everybody for the tuning in with us every week. Yes, very much so. Well, I'm Jay Scott. And I'm Dusty Phillips. And this is the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. See you next week. Can't wait.